Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. We got another wonderful episode on the docket for you today. Episode 145 with champion crew chief Rich Lucius is on the show with us. You guys remember him? He did the shoey in Victory Lane last year at Phoenix. He dealt with Ben Rhodes' drunkenness. It was great stuff, and we have him on the show with us today to talk about his career, how he got started, the long, windy road that it took to get him to where he is now, which is a race-winning crew chief and a champion one at that. Really cool guy. Glad he gave me so much of his time and shared his story. It was awesome to get to know him, for real. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to number 45. It is a very historical number in NASCAR for multiple reasons, spanning multiple names, multiple families, multiple eras, multiple decades, and Papa Siegel is going to educate us on all of it. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 145. We've spent the last few weeks reviewing three generations of the legendary Petty family. Today, we dig one generation even deeper and uncover a true what might have been story. If this hadn't been Petty Month, I'd likely have chosen Leroy Yarborough, no relation to Kale, as our Wayback Person of the Week. He had 33 races and two wins in the 45, and a long career worthy of our attention. But we'll get to Leroy another time. Kyle Petty, who we discussed last week, had 245 cup starts in the 45 car, the most of any driver. But Kyle's plan never was to drive the 45 car. That was supposed to be his son's ride. Adam Petty was the great-grandson of Lee Petty, the grandson of King Richard Petty, and the oldest child of Kyle and Patty Petty. He may have been the first fourth-generation athlete in professional American sports and was heralded in the late 90s as the next great racing Petty. If Richard was still the king in 1990, Adam was viewed as the crown prince and being groomed to return Petty Motorsports to the upper echelon of NASCAR competition. No pressure there, huh? It all started well. Like his father before him, Adam won his first ARCA race, driving number 45 at Charlotte. He posted four top 10 finishes during an up-and-down 1999 Bush Series campaign. It was all mapped out. Adam would run another year in the Bush Series with a few cup dates thrown in, then he'd make the leap to the Cup Series in 2001 and race for Rookie of the Year. Then fate intervened. On May 12, 2000, during a Bush Series practice session at New Hampshire, Adam Petty's throttle stuck wide open going into turn three. He hit the wall nearly head-on and was killed instantly from a basilar skull fracture. 
He was only 19 years old. These were different times, my friends. No Hans devices, no kill switches for stuck throttles, and no safer walls. Though Adam's death and those of other notables we've mentioned before, including Kenny Irwin and Dale Earnhardt, contributed to the adoption of all those safety improvements. We've spoken before about other what-might-have-been stories for guys like Tim Richmond, Davey Allison, and Jeremy Mayfield. But for all of them, we had glimpses of greatness that led us to question what might have been had they been with us longer. I've always thought Adam Petty was a truer what-might-have-been tale because we never got to see if the greatness that had been hoped and predicted for him would ever come to pass. Following Adam Petty's death, his father drove the 45 car for the remainder of his racing career, though it was a long time before Kyle would ever return to the New Hampshire track that took his son. Adam's lasting legacy is the Victory Junction Gang camp, which we mentioned last week and which was conceived and developed as a memorial to his memory. That's all for this week. We'll close out our tribute to the Petty family next week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Yes, number 45. Very important for many different reasons in NASCAR. When I think of 45, I think of the Sprint Adam Petty paint scheme. Obviously, we lost him way, way too soon. Could have been one of the Petty names that has carried on into today's day and age in NASCAR, but the Petty name still lives on pretty darn strong. Thank you to Pop Siegel for this week's Wayback segment. Awesome as always. And speaking of always, let's start off the show, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned And throw it straight over to our interview with Rich Lucius, champion crew chief for Thor Sport Racing and Ben Rhodes. This is an interesting, interesting guy. I told him before we started talking that I hope that you enjoy talking about yourself because we're going to ask a lot of questions about him and his career. He has done it all from local racing, late models, helping develop young drivers and hone their skill set with talent that is not harnessed yet. He has worked on Eric Jones, Landon Castle, Michael Annette, John West Townley, Cody Coughlin, just to name a few. We dive into that and more, including how he got the opportunities to be Ben Rhodes' crew chief, his ARCA championship with Frank Kimmel, and of course, we dive into the celebration seen, heard around the world at Phoenix last year with Ben Rhodes, public drunkenness, and Rich Lucius's shoey in victory lane. Not quite Daniel Ricciardo-esque, but it was pretty close. Without further ado, here is our conversation with champion crew chief, Rich Lucius. Pleasure to welcome onto the show this week, a champion in every sense of the word. It is Truck Series defending champion crew chief, Rich Lucius, and it is not luscious, it is Lucius. We made sure to get that right before we started recording. Did I do well? You did perfect. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> yes, of course. How many, how many times a day or a week or when you're at the racetrack, when you're getting interviewed, does it get messed up, your last name? Because, I mean, I, hand up. I had to ask because I didn't know. I would say about 99% of the time. So <laughs> I've got to the point where I don't even correct anybody anymore. I just go with it. Yeah, and that's probably the fine. way to do it. Yeah. yeah. I bet you, I bet you Ben, when he was inebriated after Phoenix, he probably didn't know who you were. But he probably didn't know how to pronounce <laughs> your name either. 
he always calls me Richard, first of all, for some reason. Uh-huh. And then, uh, yeah, he pronounces it wrong on purpose a lot of times. I don't know what it is about Ben and calling people by their full first names. Like he came into the media center, was calling everybody by their full given first name. Instead of Jeff, it was Jeffrey. Instead of yep. Davey, it was David, Rich, Richard. I don't know what it is about him, man. It's funny. Like people think that he, you know, I know obviously he was, he was a little intoxicated during the little bit. interview, but that's how he is normally. It's like, that's how he is when he's sober. Yeah. We have a really great relationship. So it's worked out really well. Yeah, well, we'll get into the the post-race celebrations. We'll get into your relationship with him. We'll get into all that. But I want to kind of start with the here and the now before we go back and kind of talk about your early origins with racing. What is life like for a crew chief at this point of the season? I'm sure coming off a win, albeit on a dirt track, is really nice. But like we mentioned, you know, you had an off week this past weekend, but it wasn't really off for you because you're still grinding at the shop every single day. Yeah, without a doubt. Like the so we have two weeks off now before we get ready to go to uh, Darlington. So we're trying to build up all our mile and a half stuff because we have eight week eight weeks in a row now going, um, which in a truck series is unheard of. And you know we're a lot smaller teams and a couple guys that race obviously every weekend. It's going to be harder on us, but it's all about being prepared in the shop. And uh, I feel like we're doing a really good job right now, getting ready for that for that season and for that stretch. Can you give us a quick, short breakdown about Bristol? I mean, did you expect to be that good? Did you expect some more challenges to come your guys' way racing on a dirt track with no real experience on Ben's part besides last year? Well, obviously, last year we were pretty successful there. You know, we finished second to Truex and thought we had a pretty good truck, but knew where we could make it better, too. So we came back and really worked on that. And uh, we're surrounded by some really good people here from the dirt um, series, also with Tracy Hines, and his input really helped us a bunch. And and uh, so we unloaded on Friday. I was like, oh, we're pretty good. So we just fine-tuned it a little bit and just worked on it and tried not to screw it up because you don't get many trucks like that. So when you do, you got to take advantage of it. Ben almost screwed it up, uh, decided <laughs> not to pit. What were you thinking? Um, I didn't know what to think. So <laughs> we we talked about it before the race started. You know, Like, okay, we're going to pit at the end of the first stage, and then that's going to give us options for the second stage. And uh, he just was talking and – being being it was just being Ben basically and uh Miss Pit Road. So and the, and the worst part about it is it actually hurt our teammate at the time too because the 60, 66 was told to do whatever we did. So uh right. Feel bad for those guys. But uh it all worked out in the long run. You know, obviously at the end of the second stage when we did pit and finally put some tires on it. Luckily enough people came down with us like Logano and those guys that were pretty fast too. So mm-hmm. we only restarted 13th. And uh at that point I thought we were in pretty good shape. We made some pretty good adjustments at the break just to keep up with the racetrack. And uh, Ben did a hell of a job on the last restart and did what he had to do to get the win for us. So basically, he was just being a chatterbox like usual, and that's why he missed it. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Ben's really good about analyzing everything, and he was just talking about the racetrack and how it was changing, how it was going to change, and what he he thought we should do on a pit stop or what direction we should go. And uh, next thing I know, the pace car went by the pit road, and everybody came behind us, and there we are. Well, the best part was after you guys won, he was very quick to say, you know, I may not have planned that, but I made sure to thank my crew chief because I actually gave us the win. <laughs> he always does that. But uh, yeah, no, he did a hell of a job. He knew he had to make up for the mistake yeah. there. And if yeah. it was a mistake, it is. It was a. Luckily this year, the tires didn't wear out as much as they did last year. Last year, there's no way we could have stayed out for both stages like that. Um, yeah. So. Worked out for the best, for sure. All right, uh, before we get into a little bit more of the here and the now and talk about last year, I want to go all the way back. And I'm talking for when you were two weeks old. 
because I read a little story that that was the first time when you went to the racetrack. It was in your family, and you know we'll get to that here in a minute too. But two weeks old. I mean, I've heard of some drivers starting young. I've heard of some people going to the racetrack young, but two weeks. Yeah. It's got to be up there in terms of the record books, man. That is early. Yeah, my my dad was my dad owned a racetrack in Barberton in uh, Ohio, and and he was racing and and owned some cars too back in the day. So I went to the racetrack when I was two weeks old, and and I've been doing it my whole life. I knew from the time I was about about probably 10, 12 years old that I wanted to be a crew chief. And uh, I've tried the driving thing once in a while, and I'm yeah. a way better crew chief than driver, so I'll stick to that. <laughs> and uh, but I just knew what I wanted to do and I put my head down and done a lot of local stuff and uh, got all the knowledge and stuff I could learn from everybody. And uh, here we are today. Obviously you don't remember anything from when you were two weeks old, but do you, do you hear stories from your parents or some other people that were there and like, Oh yeah, I remember your first time at the track and you were so small and all this stuff. <laughs> I, I hear a bunch of stories about when I was younger and running around the racetrack and, yeah. and just being involved, but maybe not from two weeks old. Right. Right. So you mentioned you know, your dad, he was a short track owner and operator. So this racing thing has been in your family. It's been in your blood, you know, for a really, really long time. Is your dad kind of the first one in the family that started down this motorsports path or was there anything before him? Uh, my dad was basically the first one who really started in it. My grandma's into racing. She actually won a powder puff before probably about 1960. Wow. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So she's, <laughs> there's a, it's pretty cool because there's a picture in her living room that is her winning the powder puff and it's in a convertible and uh the number was 99 so it all worked out wow that's sweet yeah, so, you gotta like put your yeah. picture next to ben's truck and that'd be sweet to have a side by side i actually gave her a picture of or i actually gave her like a shadow box for christmas of the stuff from phoenix and uh actually one of the shoes from the shoey deal was oh, in it Oh man that is cool <laughs> that's valuable right there yeah that's a pretty special <laughs> moment yeah that's awesome okay so you realized that when you were like 10 or 12 or so years old, you wanted to be a crew chief. But before that, I assume that you did try the driving thing every once in a while. How did you enjoy that? And assuming that you kind of gravitated towards that just because as a kid, everybody wants to be a race car driver, right? You don't necessarily say, oh, wow, I'm at the racetrack. I definitely want to be a crew chief and call the shots. You want to be the race car driver. You want to be the hero. So yeah. take me back to your racing days and, and how those days were for you behind the wheel. So I started in go-karts when I was about 12 years old and I ran go-karts for a couple of years. And then me and my dad built a street stock in our garage at home. And, uh, I got to do that when I was about 16, 17 years old. And I took a couple of years off there and just worked on some cars and then went back driving actually about, uh, I was about 18, 19 and, uh, I went back driving modifieds for a year. So, but, um, my brother races too. My brother drives, my nephew drives. So obviously it's in my family, but I just learned early on that, I, I do enjoy working on them. I, I get the same rush uh, working on them as I do driving. And I feel like I could, you know, I like being in charge of it and I like making the calls and seeing the driver go out and perform in it. So I just learned pretty early that, Hey, I really want to work on these things. I want to try to make yeah. these things go fast. And I like that side of it. Was there any moment when you were driving, when you kind of realized, all right, I don't, I don't think this is for me, or maybe I should, should go a different route because it seems like most people that have either gone on the crew chief path or, have been on the driving path at one point that then veered off of that, had that one kind of moment where a switch flipped and said, okay, I want to do this, or maybe this isn't right for me. It's funny because every good driver I've ever worked with, whether it's Landon Castle or, or Eric Jones or even Ben, you know, they all tell me about how the, when the race starts, everything slows down for them. So when the race started for me, everything sped up. 
And that's kind of the moment that I was like, wait a second, this isn't right. Um, yeah. I should see everything in slow motion. So, um, and then obviously the faster the car you got in, the faster the race goes for you. So I just, uh, like I said, I just, once I seen that, I was like, okay, wait a second, maybe I am better off being a crew chief. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, that local track that your father owned, is that where you started working on cars and tinkering on everything and kind of calling the shots as a de facto crew chief on the local level? It is, you know, I was basically at that point, I was 16 years old, maybe something like that. And I was going to the racetrack and I was having input and I'm like, okay, they're listening to me and, and we'd go out and be successful. So that just started growing. And, uh, yeah, about 16, 17 years old is when I really started, um, getting an input and then a voice on it. How old were the people that you were working with? Were they listening to orders from somebody <laughs> younger than them? Oh, without a doubt. Most of them were in their thirties at that time or, um, and then as it evolved and I got, you know, when ASA racing and stuff like that, then I started working with younger kids, but growing up the local level. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, older people than me, but for whatever reason, I don't know why they were believing in me and, and listening to me, but it was pretty successful. I would say that you got, it got you this far. So they were listening to the right guy, right? <laughs> I guess so. Looking back at it, it was funny. Uh, we talked earlier about, I went to Barberton this weekend with my nephew cause it was opening night and we own me and my brother own a legend car that he drives. And a couple of people that I raced with in the past were there and we were just talking and the races were over and the three of us were just sitting in the grandstands and they turned to start turning the lights out. We were still sitting in the grandstands talking about old times and everything happened. So <laughs> it's cool to go back and experience yeah. that thing once in a while. Those are the best moments though, right? I mean, when you're just vibing and you're just chilling with the people that mean the most to you, just talking shop. And then next thing you know, you look at your watch and it's been three hours, right? That's <laughs> exactly. the best moments. Exactly. That's why I like going back to, you know, to, to Barberton and Midville and even those places, you know, that, that I grew up racing on and I grew up, you know, I like going back and looking at the young kids now that are there and, and trying to help those guys as much as possible. Yeah. My nephew races, but there's also a bunch of other young kids there that are racing yeah. and trying to start now. So just trying to give back a little bit and trying to help those guys as much as possible. So for people that may not know, hand up me, can you tell us a little bit about Barberton? Because you're obviously in Sandusky, Ohio, where, where Thor Sport Racing is. A lot of people know Millbridge, Hickory, you know, all these tracks in the Carolinas, but they may not be too familiar with the tracks that are in the Midwest or in the Northeast, like up there in Ohio. So can you tell us a little bit of the track profile and, and sure. all the racing that you guys do up there? Yeah, Barberton's just a little quarter mile, a little boring. It's um, kind of like um, Bowman Gray almost is about how big it is. I love uh, it. It's uh, but it's flat and you got to learn how to rotate and the thing has to turn. And that's, that's, I think something valuable I've learned over my, over my career is how to work on those things at that type of racetrack. And then the bigger the racetrack you go to, it gets a little bit easier because, um, but, and it's funny because the first time I ever took land in there, we went up and we walked in and we stood up on the grandstands because the, the racetrack's below the grandstands. And he's like, Oh, where do they race the cars at here? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just thought that was pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. And, uh, but I raced like Barbins a quarter mile midville, which is not too far from me. Also is a three eighths mile flat racetrack also. But then we also have Sandusky next door also. And that's a half mile flat. looks like Martinsville back when we could go test, we'd go test there a lot for Martinsville. Um, mm. So most of the racetracks around here are, you know, pretty flat, pretty, pretty wore out because of the winners and, and if you can learn to set stuff up for that type of racetrack, you know, you can learn to set it up for anywhere. How would you kind of describe the racing culture up there in Ohio? Because again, a lot of people, they're, they're in the Charlotte bubble. I, I'm in DC specifically, and there's next to no racing culture here, but you know, people understand that in Mooresville, Charlotte, Cornelius, 
you know, those areas, racing is the backbone and the lifeblood of the community there. Sure. But up in there in Ohio, you know, they have Thor Sport, but in terms of NASCAR racing and motorsports, that's kind of all they really have. How would you describe the, the culture and the response to racing up there? The response I feel like is getting better and better. Um, you know, obviously with the economy the way it is and tire shortage, stuff like that has taken a little bit of a hit, but I feel like the people now are, are understanding the Thor Sports right here in Sandusky, Ohio. And we had a great turnout last year when we had the open house people, there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming in here all night long to experience it. So um, the vibe from the community here is great. They, you know, we had a parade went right through downtown and there was, I don't know how many people were in the parade watching us. <laughs> and uh, so the vibe's really good around here. Um, the local stuff, it's growing still, you know, the car counts are down a little bit, but it's growing and people are excited about it. And I think people are excited too, because we can go to Barberton and, and they know that tour sports right up here and, and they can come up here and visit the shop and then we have a local team competing and winning races. Yeah. And you're doing more than that, winning championships. I mean, I, I've even seen, you know, local Ohio papers that are writing about Thor Sports results every single week. And, you know, kind of was spearheaded by last year. You guys winning the championship, kind of put Thor Sport on the map on a national level here in 2021, 2022. But I'm seeing more coverage from Ohio media outlets that are recognizing NASCAR and specifically Thor Sport as kind of their home team i mean like going to the cup series right track house won yesterday at talladega but they're trying to make nashville their kind of home base and nashville's nascar team and you guys have been ohio's nascar team for almost over two decades so you guys have been ahead of the curve yeah exactly and like like you said we've won some championships here with crafton before yeah. and, and we won arca championship and i was here before with with uh frank kimmel mm -hmm. so i mean we have some championships but for whatever reason lately uh the coverage has got way more intense and people are recognizing it and people recognize, like you said, that we're not in the norm. We're not, we're not down there. And what, what our owner calls a swamp um, <laughs> up here, we control our own destiny and, and people are starting to notice and take, and take notice of it. And it's, it's all working out pretty well. Does he call it the swamp just because there's so much going on down there and Duke and Ron, it just kind of like to be in their little area and their silo, do their own thing. Yeah. Duke loves that fact. Duke loves being up here, being away from everything, being away from all the drama down there and the control swamp. our own. <laughs> controlling our own destiny and uh you know we get good people up here and we try to keep them up here as much as possible and train them and and yeah he loves that fact yeah so you mentioned you know landon castle michael annette eric jones those are the three names the big names at least that i know you have had a really really big hand in helping develop their careers specifically on the local short track level the late model level so let's kind of go go one by one here. I know Michael Annette just kind of hung up the helmet on a full-time basis with dealing with some injuries last year, but being a Midwest guy, he has some roots in Iowa with Pilot Flying J. He's won a handful of races, you know, won that Daytona Xfinity race. I think that's kind of what most people may remember him for in the Xfinity series with JRM. What did you see in a young Michael Annette? And tell me some of the memories that you've had with him over the years, just kind of helping him hone and develop his own craft. Uh, really, the biggest thing with him is that I saw he was driven. Like most people thought he was a spoiled rich kid, you know, just where he, the money he came from. But he wanted this. He wanted to race. He wanted he he had the desire. Um, we were surrounded by some really good people, and you know, we had the resources obviously to compete and win races. And but I just saw how driven he was and how much he actually did want this. And uh, he when you got him away from everything else, he was a really great kid. And uh, like I said, he just had that desire. I think a lot of people probably put that label on him for good reason, but also it's a bit misconstrued, right? I mean, you have seen him 
and the highs of highs, the lows of lows. And you've probably spent more time with him on the local level where you're grinding your teeth, you're trying to make laps and get speed more than anybody else. So if anybody's going to say he's not just a spoiled rich kid, like he actually works his butt off and tries to get better at this stuff, it's you. So I think that kind of speaks volumes to his character because a lot of people just may see on the surface that he's running a car, good equipment, his father's company, but you see him working in the trenches and he had been for all those years to get to where he was. Yeah, without a doubt. I feel like, you know, the injury stuff, like you were talking about stuff, I think that, you know, obviously he had to hang everything up because of that, but I'm sure that really hurt him deep down too, because yeah. you know, that he, how bad he really wanted this and how bad he wanted to, to move forward and progress. Yeah. I mean, that's why he held on for so long. People were saying, you know, go just sit it out for your health. You know, you've accomplished a lot. You got all the money in the world, do, do whatever you got to do. But the reason he wanted to come back was because he loved racing and, and that's yeah. what he wanted to do. So I think that really speaks volumes. And again, to say that you were able to work with him and kind of know him from the start, that had to be a pretty cool full circle moment once he, once he hung up the helmet last year. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a sad moment too, to see him go and see him not race anymore. But yeah, it definitely was a cool moment to see that I had a small part of his career and, you know, and like you said, how much he hung on there. I think it just shows what kind of people he was raised by and what kind of family he was surrounded by. That, you know, they were taught not to ever give up and to, to go after everything they wanted. All right. Next up, Landon Castle, one of the most underappreciated, <laughs> underrated drivers, I think, in this kind of era of NASCAR. And I'm so glad he's gotten a really great opportunity with Colleg this year in the Xfinity Series. But back in the day... <laughs> this man could get it done, and he still can. I mean, we remember when he was a Hendrick test driver, but before that with Rich, Landon Castle, Oktoberfest winner, 2006, Speed Weeks that same year. What did you see in a young Landon Castle that stood out for you, and you said, I think this kid may be someone? It's funny. Like in 2000, uh, it was uh, 2003 is when we start, first started looking at him because he was racing his father's car, and it was just him and his uncle and his dad going on the racetrack. And uh, in 2004, I had the opportunity to bring him onto a deal that I had here in Ohio. And uh, he actually ran for Greg Prunty from Greg's Towing here in, in Akron. And it's just something I saw about the desire in the kid and, and how much he worked on his own stuff. And uh, I was the only employee when I when his father actually hired me and we moved forward in 2000, at the end of 2004. I was the only employee in the shop. And, uh, and then Landon and his best friend, Danny Limkul, would come in. Uh, as soon as school was over and they just hang out with me and we would just uh we would work on the race cars and have a good time and but then Landon started saying well i want to fabricate i want to try to put my own bodies on i want to try to make my own duct work so i would work i'd go to work about 7 a.m and i'd work with him until about six o'clock and he would be in that shop until midnight go home do his schoolwork, and uh i'd come back in the next morning and the shop would be a disaster but it would uh he would have done a lot of work. Like he, he was really took pride in his and doing his own body stuff and putting his own bodies on his late models. And, and he really honed his craft too in the late model deals. And uh, he just, I don't know. There's something about him that I've always been drawn to. Like we're still really good friends to this day. Like I've seen him at Martinsville. We've talked for a half hour, 45 minutes, just about life in general and about racing. And I've seen him grow up. I've seen him. We started that four, he was 14 when we first started together. So I've seen him mature as a person and, and now he's a father. And so he's just a great person. You get all the crypto stuff he's doing or no? Uh, I, I'm a little too old for that, I think. Uh, <laughs> but he me teach, too. he's me trying too. to teach me though. I know. I know. He tries to explain it so well, but I just, I, I can't do it. All right. <laughs> um, but th that's a big thing too, because Landon, you know, before he got this colleague opportunity, he was known as the guy who would run in the start and park car or the back marker car, but do more 
with less. And he did it so, so well. It sounds like from a really young age, he kind of understood how the sausage is made, so to speak. And you got to work on your stuff to appreciate it, to not go out and just wreck it. And he understands the man hours, the time, the preparation, all these things that go into creating a race car. So that's why when he was in backmarker cars, he was able to get the most out of it because even though he wasn't presumably working and tinkering on cup cars all the time, he still understood all the work that went into it and how hard it was to get to that point. So maybe that kind of gave him an upper hand since he was 13, 14 years old, fast forwarding, you know, 15, 20 years later to seeing how he can perform and how he has performed in the top levels of NASCAR. Do you think that has any correlation? Oh, without a doubt, I do. I feel like that back in the late model days, he knew, hey, if I wreck this thing, I got to fix it. You know, I got to put the fenders back on it. And I and along the way, we would make adjustments and say, OK, this is what it's doing. You know, this is what you should feel. And he'd go out. And then as the year went on, progressed and the, as the seasons went on, he could tell me, OK, this is the feeling I have. This is what I think we need, because this is what you told me in the past that we've done. And this is the feeling I want now. And I think that spoke volumes when he went to be a Hendrix test driver. Um, Check and Alice would call him all the time, asking him to go test shocks or go do this because he had the feel. So I think knowing that feel and then knowing, hey, how hard did these guys work on these things to prepare him each week. That's why he didn't tear stuff up in the start and park stuff. And that's why, you know, and he his desire and the way he still, you know, he pushed forward when everything looked, you know, bleak for a while for him. Like he didn't have a ride. He just yeah. but he kept going and kept pushing forward. And, and it finally paid off. And, you know, I think this colleague deal is going to be a great deal for him. And I hope he makes the most of it. Yeah. I feel like everybody, you know, myself included, we've known for the past decade or so when he's been running in mid-pack equipment that he has the talent to run up front, but you've known it longer than anybody, so it must have been nice to see him get rewarded with an opportunity with top flight equipment. Yeah, he I've always known he's a great driver and I and I and struggled I struggled watching him in those back market cars and all that, knowing that he's way better than what he was in. Yeah. So now I'm hoping with this colleague stuff, you know, that he's running up front now and people are starting to see it more and more. Like you said. Most people knew it, but I think to, to prove it and show those guys, I think that's a big a big step forward this year. Yeah, definitely. All right, next, Eric Jones. What a late model career this young man had. Almost won at Talladega yesterday. Oh, so close. Oktoberfest, Snowball Derby, Winchester 400. Those are the three big ones, not even counting the other medium-sized events that he absolutely tore up on the late model circuit. And he did that with you at the helm, working on the car as his crew chief. Those days when Eric was coming up through the ranks and before he got with KBM and JGR and, and started tearing up the NASCAR National Series, he was tearing up the local late model scene with you. What were those days like? I have to imagine those those must have been kind of the glory days of local racing for you, being in Victory Circle every single week. It really was. It was. Uh, it was. I, started, I was starting to come to my own as a crew chief. People were starting to know a little bit who I was. So, and then getting hooked up with him. The first time I saw him, he came to the shop. He was 13 years old. I was working for Port City Race Cars at the time in Michigan. And uh, Harley Bovey that owned it came to me and said, hey, I got this young kid coming in that he wants you, they're going to pay for you to go to Florida with him for speed weeks and just um, help them out. And I said, okay. So he come in the shop and this is this little scrawny 13 year old kid. And uh, so we talked a little bit about what we were going to do the week of first speed weeks. And then we, gotten everything went to florida and go to florida in the first practice session he wrecks the car and i'm like oh i'm in for a long week 
<laughs> but by the end of the week, the lessons we learned and when, and, uh, he got better and better each day. And, you know, we ran, I think top three, the, the final day. So then I'm like, all right, this kid's got something maybe. And, and just watch him some more. And, and uh, then we went to Toledo, the first actual ASA race that we were going to run. And we sat on the pole and, uh, was going to win the race and got taken out by a lap car. But, mm. and then we had a lot of things like that. Like, like you said, that Oktoberfest, we go to Oktoberfest and, and uh, this is when I realized really how good he really was. We go to Oktoberfest and uh, they, we had restrictors in the motor from that was mandated from ASA. When we went out, we were three or four tenths faster than the field the whole time. And right, practice was over and they told us, hey, we're going to change your guys' restrictors. And I'm like, you can't change our restrictors because just because we're faster than everybody else. So they did because it's their sandbox and we were playing in it. So sure. Um, but I said, well, then we need to get a couple laps for practice. And they said, no, you're not gonna get no laps of practice, nothing at all. I'm like, okay. So finally they end up giving us three laps and he goes out and the first, I was reading off lap times and by the second lap, he was going the same speed he went with the other restrictors in. And he was smart enough at 14 years old to know at that point to stop, to just run those, <laughs> to run exactly that speed. Yeah. So <laughs> then in the race, um, I said, okay, now when you take the lead today and you're going to take the lead, I don't want you to stop. I want you to go as hard as you can go every lap. And we're going to lap these guys as much as these guys as we can to prove yeah. a point. And he said, okay. And we were on the bumper of third or lap third when, we came, when the checker flag came out. So, man, yeah, he was. And then obviously the biggest win probably of our career together was the snowball derby when we beat Kyle Bush in, in 2012. And that was mm -hmm. just tremendous feeling. But uh, he just got up on the wheel and did a hell of a job there and was able to beat Kyle at that point. We're this little team from Michigan, you know, with a couple of people and Kyle comes in there with, you know, his semi hauler and Kyle, it's Kyle Bush and Chris Gabehart and all those guys. I think that was by far our biggest win together. You think that was your biggest win as a crew chief to that point, winning that derby? To that point, yes. Without a doubt, definitely to that point. Yeah. Because um, that obviously put him on the map and he got, you know, obviously got signed by KBM right after that. But mm -hmm. that also had people, you know, I was working at Thorsport full time on the ARCA program at that point too. I was doing that dairy stuff on the side. And, uh, but that was by far my biggest win is at that point. So that leads me to another question. I think you kind of answered it there. I was, I wasn't sure if you were with Thorsport at that point with Frank on the ARCA stuff, but you know, when, when Eric beat Kyle in that race, that obviously kind of sparked and spearheaded KBM signing him, him getting into the Toyota pipeline, JGR, et cetera, et cetera. But seeing all the success that you had with him on the local level, conventional wisdom would suggest, all right, if he's going to go NASCAR racing, let's bring the team with him. I mean, let's bring the crew chief, the car chief, the engineer, all these people that have made him so successful. Let's keep them together because they got a good thing going. Right. But the fact that you weren't his crew chief and you weren't working with him on the NASCAR side, was that just because you already had, you know, things going on at Thor sport. And it was also a situation where KBM was a big behemoth kind of machine that they are. And they had people in place. It was just something that had run its course to that point. Yeah. I feel like it was just something where it ran its course a little bit and they had, you know, people in place and they had, you know, obviously they got talented people at KBM. So right. I believe that was the biggest thing. Cause that happened a couple of times in my career, you know, obviously the deal when Landon got signed. Um, so it's happened a couple of different times, but I think that the other thing that's done for me is just, it driven me more to, to make a name for myself and to want to win races and championships like we have now. And, but it's hard to see that a little bit and hard for that to happen to you, but it also you sit back and look at it and you go, okay, but at least I had a small part in our career and, and let's what's next and let's go forward. And 
So when that happened, um, I came back here and then we won the championship in 2013 with Frank. Mm-hmm. And then I actually went, I actually did go to the North Carolina route for a while and went down there to that deal. And right. Worked with John West Townley and those guys. So, but I think that just drip, it just driven me to, to be more successful and to put my head down and dig and never take anything for granted either. Definitely. Yeah. You're going right through my outline. I love it. We're, <laughs> we're moving right along. So 2013 is when you won that ARCA title with, with Frank Kimmel senior. First of all, working with him, I know he obviously is an institution when it comes to the Arca Menard series, right? I mean, when I think of Arca, Frank is probably one of, if not the first name that I think of, and a lot of people probably think of. What was it like to work with him? What was he everything that everybody sees on television and has heard about for years and years? Oh yeah, with <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, Frank's a great guy. You know, his whole family is, was great, and and obviously we had a good uh, structure here, and we had good cars, and and we had Menards as a sponsor, so we had the best of everything we possibly could go to run the Arca. But to work with Frank and somebody of that talent and, and, and the legend is like working with Dale Earnhardt, basically, you know. Yeah. So, so to get a chance to work with him and and uh, it just showed me a different side of it too because I had been working with some young kids all you know up to that point. So it showed me the other side of it too. So I get to work with a little bit older guy and and yeah. been there and knows what to do and except when we go to road courses. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, Frank's a great person and uh, we really enjoyed our time together in 2012, 2013 when he was here. It's a great point. I, I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, but up until this point, I mean, I know you've worked with other drivers, but specifically mentoring and helping develop younger drivers. And I'm talking real young, like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids. So you do a great job with that. And then you go and work with Frank Kimmel senior. Who's one of the oldest drivers that everybody probably knows. Was that a tough adjustment for you at all? Or was it something that was pretty seamless considering you knew that he knew what he was doing and he knew that you knew what you were doing and you guys could kind of just work like that in simpatico. Yeah, it actually was, it was seamless. Um, like I said, Frank's just such a good guy and such an understanding and he, he under, he's been in this for so long that he's worked with so many different people. Like he knows about chemistry and about people and how to, how to motivate people. And, and so to work with him and it was just a seamless transition and uh, like you said, he knew what he was doing every racetrack he goes to. So yeah. we didn't have to, we knew that wasn't a problem. We knew that it wasn't a driver. We knew we had to fix the car to what he needed, but um, yeah, it was, it was a fun time. So you mentioned, you know, you ended up going down to, to North Carolina and doing that, doing that thing. We'll get there in a minute, but did, at this time, right? What, once you've mentored these young drivers, you've worked with Frank, you've won a championship, right? You're a champion in NASCAR. Did you have your eye on going down there and moving up into the national series more at all? Or at that point, were you content doing what you were doing with door sport in Ohio, doing the ARCA stuff, mentoring some young drivers on the side? What was your mentality at that point? Well, the biggest thing was, I was, you know, I'm from Ohio, so this is a good fit for me. You know, I have family here, so that was a really good fit, but, but I wanted more. I wanted, I wanted to go to the next level. I wanted to, I wanted to see, you know, work with different drivers and, and new opportunities. So at that point, I had a really good opportunity to go to Venturini's and, and crew chief for John West Townley. So I went there and, and that, I made it about eight months before that deal started to blow up a little bit. And I'm, and I decided I want, and then actually Joe Shear called me and he was over at, um, at that point he was working for Cole Custer and, um, starting to, they were starting a truck team and right. he's like, Hey, will you come over and do this with me? And I thought it was a great opportunity. And then, you know, obviously that, that morphed into, going to, we were at JRM for a year or so. So I just was looking for more and, and I've done that a lot in my career to where 
I'm looking for the next step and the next, what the, the next challenge. Yeah. And so, so that was the next challenge, right? Going with JRM after you had your experience at Venturini. Um, I think that they started that truck program for Cole, I think to get him some more experience there. And at that time, you know, Casey Kane ran a couple races in the double zero. I think Kevin Harvick was, was there as well. Was your official role truck chief? Was that it? Or were you with the crew chief there as well? No, I was, I was the truck chief. Joe Shearer was thought. the crew chief. Uh, we worked really well together, but like you said, we had, you know, the first year was, we were just going to run Cole and we ran Cole, but then we sprinkled in some cup drivers there to, you know, like you said, Kevin Harvick and Alex Bowman drove it a couple of times. That's right. Yeah. Casey Kane. Obviously we won Casey. That was one of, one of my favorite wins too, is we won with Casey Kane at Charlotte. Right. But it was my favorite win. One of my favorite wins. Cause we beat was Eric. a photo finish, right? And we beat Eric on a photo finish. And I always yeah. rub that in when I talk to him. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> yeah. That was, but, that was a big year, obviously for a lot of reasons. At this point, you've obviously kind of uprooted your life and moved. As you mentioned, you're from Ohio. You live there now. You're enjoying yourself. Moving down to Charlotte, to the swamp, as Duke and Rhonda kind of referred to it. How was that adjustment for you? Because that, that I mean, obviously, everybody says if you want to work in NASCAR, you got to be in Charlotte. You got to be in North Carolina. But you don't have to. You could be in Northeast Ohio and Sandusky and do the same thing. And you had been there having success doing that. What was the adjustment period like going down there to the swamp? It was funny, you know. I, I wanted to be in North Carolina because, like you said, everybody said if you want to if you want to win races, if you want to be in NASCAR, you've got to go to North Carolina. It's okay. I want to go to North Carolina, so I went to North Carolina and experienced it. But then I was like, you know what? Like, it's pretty nice being in Northeast Ohio and having all the resources you need and not being down there and sure. not to worry about the one of the things that were happening years ago down there was, you know, if your buddy needed a job and and it didn't matter if he was better than the guy you already had. You were going to give your buddy the job and get rid of the guy you had. So there's a bunch of that going on down there. So to be up here, you know, with their loyalty and 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 uh, how well they treat people, you know, that that's the biggest thing that brought me back to Ohio. I was going to say, I take you as the guy who enjoys a bit of a a bit of a smaller team vibe, more loyalty, able to have your hands in a bunch of different platforms and places on the race team, and it seems like in Charlotte, obviously, JRM's a big behemoth organization, and not that Thor Sports not, but just the the scale of the truck series back then down there versus right now where you are. It seems like Thor Sport is really where you enjoy being, and it's just a better fit overall, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely, it is. I like you said, I I enjoy working on the trucks. I enjoy like before the, before we had this conversation, I was out in the shop working on a Darlington truck. I enjoy being out there and having my hands on it and yeah. working with the guys and you know, and building that chemistry with the guys and the team. I enjoy that part of it where, you know, in North Carolina, sometimes you have all your guys in place and they have a system and, and, and you don't necessarily have to work on the truck all day long. And and we, that's not saying we don't have a system in place here because we do, but I would much rather be out there helping my guys and, and showing them that I'm not going to ask them to do anything that I'm not going to do. So at this point, you had been a crew chief before on the local level. You'd been a crew chief for Frank winning the championships. You did the deal with John West. You were working with Cole, Casey, Alex, Kevin Wright, but you still had never been a crew chief calling the shots in NASCAR's National Series. But that shot came a few years later with Thor Sport. The first time you were a full-time crew chief, I believe, was 2018 with Myatt Snyder. What do you remember about that year? Because it's one thing to go from being a crew chief for a race or two here and there, or maybe helping the, the, the crew chief at the time make adjustments or make the calls. 
It's a whole different ball game when you are the guy for all the races in one season. That had to be a, a big culture shock to you, or maybe it wasn't. You can tell me if I'm wrong. In uh, 2017, um, the beginning of 2017, I got the, I got a phone call to come back to Thor Sport. I was in North Carolina, and and Cody Coughlin was going to try to drive for Thor Sport, and I had worked with Cody a little bit in his late model career, so I, there was a little bit of that of that relationship already. So I got the um, call to come back and actually be the truck chief of Cody's deal first. And um, Michael Shelton was going to be the crew chief, but he was going to live in North Carolina and just fly in. So I thought, all right, that's a good deal. Let's go do that. And uh, so I moved back to Ohio to do that. And then at the very end of the year, I actually crewed you the last three races of the of that year. So they gave me a little bit of taste of it, like you're saying. But And then, in uh, like you said, in 2018, Duke finally gave me the opportunity uh, and the chance to crew chief the truck full time for Maya Snyder. And uh, building that team and, and, and from the ground up, you know, basically, and, and having my hands in every single aspect of that team was, was a great challenge for me. But I also, I, that's why I like and enjoy doing that. So we built a really good group of guys and was able to capture the rookie of the year that year and had some really good finishes towards the end of the year and, and watched the thing grow and watched us from the beginning of the season, you know, running 15th to 20th and thinking that was a decent run to run top 10s to, you know, finishing second at Talladega and finishing third to, to Johnny and, at um, Martinsville. So we had some really good runs at the end of the year. And then um, and then in 2019, you know, the opportunity came for Joe and Johnny to come back to Thorsport. So Duke asked me if I was if I would go back to be in a truck chief position just because obviously you're bringing Joe Shear and Johnny Sauter in, you know, that's that's a big deal. So I figured I could learn more from Joe and 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 that's what we did next. That had to be a bit of a gut check for you, too, to, to work all these years, finally get the opportunity to become a crew chief at the truck series level, have success doing it, win rookie of the year with a young driver, and then basically be told, hey, we want you to step back down. How, how did you take that? Um, I, didn't, I, pro- I probably was a little bit more outspoken than I should have been for it, but Duke was, uh, Duke was completely honest with me and kept, kept telling me to trust the process. And it's funny, I heard Chris Gabehart on Sirius the other day talking about trusting the process and, you know, how it all works. And it, it really hit home with me. But, yeah, I wasn't happy about it, obviously, because we'd had some success and, and built you know, built a really good deal, I thought. But uh, Duke kept telling me, you know, it's going to work out. Just just have faith in me and, and stick it out. And and I did. And, I, and it was hard. But uh, we had some success there, too, you know, with, with Johnny. I learned a bunch of things from Johnny and Joe that I'm grateful for. And, and obviously, then here we are now. Does that go back to the whole loyalty factor of things being in Northeast Ohio, being comfortable there working for Duke and Rhonda forever? I mean, it'd be one thing if Joe Schmo told you to trust the process. It's another thing if somebody you legitimately trust and, and have worked for for a while told you that they'd take care of you. And clearly they did. Yeah. When, when Duke tells you something, you go, it's pretty much set in stone. And, and yeah, it goes back to the loyalty factor. You know, I, I trusted him and he trusted me and, and uh, he always, you know, everything that he has planned out works. And uh, sometimes we don't understand the plan, but, but as we see it unfold, we're all like, okay, he knew exactly what he's talking about to begin with. So. So that year, were you like bitter going to the racetrack or like working on stuff or were you just having your head down, working on things, knowing that you get an opportunity again and you want it to be ready? It was a little bit of both, I guess. Um, I obviously I was bitter because I, I wanted to be the crew chief and I want, I, I love that factor of making the calls and it all rests on your shoulder and, so I really enjoy that. But yeah, I was a little bit bitter, but yet, you know, I knew we had a job here to do and I knew we could win races and we could have a shot at a championship and, and uh, that, you know, that didn't play out like we had planned, but, um, but yeah, 
I guess a little bit of both. Yeah. So when did things then turn back around and when did you get the other crew chief opportunity? I guess it was the following year, right? No, it was actually took two seasons for it to, so I didn't, the crew chief deal didn't come back until 2021. The beginning of 2021, we had some people Worked leave. Well. Some, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and some things, some things changed here and uh, there was an opportunity open and, and, you know, and Duke gave me the opportunity to, to crew chief for Ben last year. And then we go to Daytona and win the first two races. And so just once again, it shows that Duke knew exactly what he was talking about. I guess he did. You're right. I, I did have my timelines off. I, I misread my outline here. So yeah, your first season with Ben was last year and that was your first year back as a full-time crew chief since you were with Maya back in 2018. Did you know that it was going to be like a bit of a special pairing right off the bat or did it take a couple weeks, even in the off season to realize, you know, you were learning Ben, Ben was learning you, there's lingo to understand, there's driving tendencies and, and, and calling tendencies to understand. When did you realize that it was going to be a bit of a special pairing, you two? So even when I was here um, in 2017 and 2018, and Ben was here, you know, on a different team, we would joke around and kid around and had pretty good chemistry together. So I was pretty happy when Duke paired us together and thought that there could this could be something special. And, but it took a couple of races to get in, obviously you go to Daytona the, and win the first race. And you're like, okay, <laughs> starting off pretty well, <laughs> but it took a couple of weeks, uh, about a couple months, I guess, before we both were on each other's the same page and knew what each other was talking about. And I still learned things from him once in a while, but um, we've worked really hard on the chemistry together and worked on, you know, the race craft is the biggest thing. You know, I feel like that he learned how to race last year. Um, I feel like he learned how to get to the end of the races and learned if he had a fifth place truck, let's finish fifth and let's work on it and make it better. And I feel like right now, I feel like that's actually made us better this year. I feel like we got more speed this year. We got better finishes. We got better trucks going on the racetrack because, because I know what he needs and what, and you know, what makes him go fast. Ben's not in the swamp either. He obviously lives in Louisville and he's very proud of that. He's very proud that he is a Thor sport racing driver. He makes the commute up from Kentucky to Ohio and he only goes to Charlotte when he needs to. I feel like that makes you guys a little bit more of a an interesting off the wall pairing, just because Thor Sport in and of itself in the in the NASCAR lexicon is different, right? I mean, it's it's the Furniture Row model, but before Furniture Row of being somewhere else that's centralized, but having success. And you would think, oh well, the driver they just you know come in, see the shop once every month, and go race. But Ben is more than that. Ben is living his own life with his family and he also tries to get out to the shop as much as he can even though it's not right down the road and I think that kind of speaks volumes to why you guys have had so much success together because even though Ben's quirky and he has his funny deals that he does at the end of the day he's a racer just as much as you are and he puts in the time and the effort to do it yeah he probably wants to win races more than anybody I've ever seen he analyzes everything and works on it works on it harder than anybody I've ever been with and um yeah, like he's here way more than you think the no a normal driver would be, you know, because like you said, even in North Carolina, the drivers are half hour away and they're sometimes you don't see them. But, right. you know, he's three hours away and he, he's here probably <laughs> <laughs> as often as he can be. And like you said, unless he's in North Carolina going to the simulator or now his new thing is he he's going to Millbridge and, and working with right. Chad Bode and working on trying to make, but he's also trying to just make us better. That's what he's trying to do. You know, yeah. we talked after his race last week and you know, he was upset because he didn't get the finish that he thought he should get. And he wasn't, he was hard on himself, which he always is. Um, and we talked about it and I'm going to try to go to the next race with him and try to help him out a little bit and just try to just keep building that chemistry and keep building that notebook and, and, uh, 
just keep working on me and him and making our race trucks better and see what we can. I really want to repeat this year. That's the biggest, our biggest goal. Yeah. I want to go back for a second. So last year you open up the year, you went at Daytona. Incredible. You went at the road course. Incredible, right? You've waited a couple years to get that crew chief opportunity again. You come out the gate with a new driver and you win races back to back to start off the year. You had to have a pretty big pep in your step. I would, if I were you. I did, but I also still was focused on the, you know, winning races. And I, mm. I feel like we struggled in the middle of the season there. And I feel like I, I hold it on myself and that I didn't give Ben what he needed, obviously. But yeah, winning Daytona, both Daytonas was big. It was to me, it was, it was just um, justification that I could do this and that I deserve to be in this role. So, yeah, and then we struggled a little bit, but yeah, that, it definitely had a little pep in my step going into the next race. <laughs> Would you say Daytona was the biggest one of your career or not? Because a lot of people hold Daytona in high regard because NASCAR has been all they've ever known and wanted to do, but you're a little bit different. You've done the short track stuff and you've had a lot of success there as well. Daytona means a lot, but so does Winchester. So does Pensacola, you know? Right. I felt like Daytona was the biggest one in my career at that point. I really do. I felt like, you know, like you said, it just put me on them. It, it said, Hey, I can do this. I'm here. Right. I can win races. Right. So, and it's something that I had had one to do. You know, I actually, I dreamed about it since I was five years old or, you know, that I want to be a crew chief and I want to, and I want to win races. And now you're at Daytona and you want a Daytona. So yeah, it means a lot, but I feel really feel like now I feel like last week was our biggest win in my career. Um, wow. I really do. Like, I feel like it just was, Bristol's a special place to me, and I feel like that means a lot to me to be able to win there. Yeah, I saw. I think your dad took you to Bristol, and that was your first race that you went to. And to have that all come full circle must have been pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I'm, I still remember being there. I was maybe about 11 years old, 12 years old, and I can remember, you know, seeing Bill Elliott there because Bill Elliott was my favorite driver growing up. And and I could see. I remember seeing him there and get my picture taken with him. I still have that picture. And. uh to be able to, to do that and then, like you said, come full circle and be able to stand on top of the building there in Victory Lane meant a whole lot to me. So let's fast forward a little bit. You don't win the race at Phoenix, but that's okay. You win the championship, right? The feelings during the race, as the race is winding down, once the checkered flag flies, you realize that you are the champions. Take me through those range of emotions atop the pit box. So it was, it was kind of weird. The whole day, you know, the practice day and, and the race, it was a calming feeling. Uh, me and Ben both talked about that, that we just had this calmness of that everything was good. We had done that, everything we could do at that point, you know? So it was just a calm deal on the pit box. It was, it was pretty calm during the race. Uh, obviously when uh, Zane got by us a little bit there, we got pretty nervous, but I knew we had a good long run truck. And then Ben was reeling him in and just, and then when the, when the checker flag fell and we were, we knew we were going to be the champions, like, it was just a range of emotions that, uh, you know, how hard you worked for something and how much you desired for one thing. And, and it's finally there, you know, finally true and finally in front of you. And it was great to have my brother there to be able to experience that with him. Yeah. So you go to victory lane, the champagne is flowing <laughs> and the shoey happens. You really had to have your leg pulled to do that shoey, didn't you? So before Martinsville, I think it was that year we talked about doing it and I'm like, sure, I'll do it, you know? And uh, yeah, whatever. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And everybody had forgot about it. You know, we're celebrating and everybody's just like happy and the champagne's going and everybody's forgot that we're in good shape. And then my engineer, Anthony Sergi, decided that he was going to remind everybody about it. And I was not going to do it. I was not going to do it. <laughs> but and then I guess, I mean, 
I guess the emotions of winning the race and everything just and and not wanting to let my team down because I told him I'd do it. Um, I did it, but I told Ben I'd do it again if we win another championship. And I'm sure you would. And I'm Without sure he'd doubt. make you. <laughs> exactly. <Good> exactly. <laughs> Without a doubt. Like if you win something if you win a championship, something that big, who cares if you got a drink out of a shoe? Best tasting champagne you've ever had, probably. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and you have those shoes still? You gave one to your grandma? Yeah, actually, my, uh, Ben gave me both shoes, and I grabbed both of them. I gave my brother a shadow box and my grandma a shadow box, and, and I have both the shoes. And and pretty special moment for my family because, like you said, as, as involved as we've been in racing forever, and and that's what all we've ever done. So to uh, to have those shoes and have the meaning behind them means a lot. That's awesome. Okay, so... A lot of people may know you from the shoey, but I hope that the last uh, 50 or so minutes have have made people realize that you are more than just a champion winning crew chief who drank champagne out of a shoe. Uh, Let's get to your driver for a second, because his post-race press conference was the stuff of legends. I mean, that will live on forever, as it should. When did you realize that he could not handle his alcohol? Um. Probably when I walk, so the race is over and I go do some media stuff and he goes and does some media stuff. And then I get all done and our PR girl, Lynn, came and grabbed me and said, hey, I think you need to come in here. So <laughs> I walked into Uh-oh. media. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right. So I go to walk in the media center and I walk in. He's already talking and I know it's bad. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I go over and I have a drink in my hand and I sit down and his wife's sitting there and she's like her her uh, head's in her hands and she just can't believe herself. And I handed her my drink. I said, here, you need this way more than I do. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, but like we said, well, like we talked before, it's that's Ben, like, obviously, obviously alcohol was, was involved, but that's Ben, like he's that goofy and all the yeah. time. And that's, but he's got such a great personality and, and, uh, that's why people are drawn to him too. He's a bad mamma jamma. And we all he found definitely out. Is. He definitely <laughs> is. I remember because I was sitting in the deadline room with you guys. You walked in, and I remember he stopped what he was doing. He just stared at you. He goes, guys, that's my crew chief, Rich. Give him a round of applause. And I think people started clapping or something. It was, oh, my God. It was tremendous. And I do do remember his wife was just absolutely embarrassed beyond belief. I felt bad for her. But looking back on it, I mean, even a few months removed, like that was – that was one of the funniest moments at the racetrack. And I'm sure you'll remember oh, that for the rest of your life too. Yeah. Everybody talks about it. Like if, if you meet the random person and they're like, well, you know, what are you doing? And you tell them that you're Ben Rhodes crew chief. Oh, that's a guy from the interview. Exactly. And yeah. So everybody knows him. And I think it's changed a lot of perspective. Of a lot of people that didn't like him in the past and thought he was, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I, a lot more people like him now. And, and you can even hear it. It's funny that, but you can even hear it when people cheer, when they announce him now at the racetrack, it's, it's night and day. <laughs> Yeah. So I actually was texting him because I wanted to find out some quirks or like anything that I could grill you on. Right. And he literally said he has nothing. He's like, no, he just works really hard. He goes to bed really early, but he only sleeps like five hours a night. I don't really have anything. So are you really that boring? You don't have any quirks, Rich? This is what I want to do. I want to race. I mean, I want to work on race cars. Um, I have I've I have quirks where I don't want my guys to wear the hat on backwards. If that's anything like one time, one of my guys would wear his hat on backwards and I kept telling him to stop and he didn't listen. So I took it over the bandsaw and cut it in two pieces. He never wore it backwards <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, so I don't know about corks, but this is what I want to do. I want to work on race cars and I want to win races and I want to win championships and I want to do everything I can to be successful. Why no backwards hats? I don't know. I just think it's disrespectful. Okay. That's fair. I'm, at least you didn't fire him. You just taught no. him a lesson by <laughs> cutting his hat in half. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yep. That's a good thing. How did you celebrate the championship? Because I don't know, just conventional wisdom would suggest Sandusky, Ohio is not the hotbed for celebrating anything. I don't know. No, we had we had a nice we had an open house here. We had a parade through downtown, which was great. Um, awesome. Ben wanted me to ride with him in the truck for the parade, and I said no. And then once again, <laughs> I gave in. So, <laughs> I rode on the floorboard for, on the right side of the really. Floorboard. Oh yeah, um, we had a great time though. Like. And uh, to, obviously Nashville was fun when we got to go celebrate the oh, championship yeah. in Nashville and had some really good times with my guys down there and got to got to watch those guys enjoy it, which meant a lot to me too because I know how hard they work each day. How did the 2021 championship in trucks compare to 2013 in ARCA? Because there's obviously an eight-year gap there. The goal is the same. You accomplish the same thing. But I feel like the road that you had to go through from 2013 to 2021 to get to where you were, that had to make 2021 all the more sweet. Oh, definitely did. Uh, without, you know, I, I feel like that it justified everything that I've been through my whole life and my career, you know, to get to there. And, and now it showed people that I can do this. And that's, you know, that means a lot to me. Wrapping up here. I know that you said the goal is another championship. It's to win races. It's to win championships. You guys are obviously locked into the postseason, barring anything absolutely crazy that that comes down the wire here. How are you feeling about where your 99 team's at? How are you feeling about where Ben's at as a driver? I know that it obviously comes down to one race, winner take all in Phoenix, but getting there is obviously one of the ultimate goals. You feel like you guys are in a good position to do that again? I do. I actually feel like we're better right now than we were last year. I feel like we have more speed. I feel like I understand Ben more, and I feel like he's in a better spot. I feel like he you know, understands where I'm coming from and, and trusts me more now. Um, so I feel like we're in a way better spot than we were last year at this point. And, uh, and hopefully that means, you know, bad news for the competition because obviously now we're leading the points and, and, uh, and got the one win under our belt. So like you said, we're going to be guaranteed to go to the playoffs, but we want more than that. We want the regular, we want the regular season championship too this year, you know, cause that's 15 bonus points and that's all we're worried about right big. now as bonus, as bonus points. Very big. I always ask a lot of my guests what else they want to accomplish in their racing career, whether it be if they're on the media side, if they're a driver, if they're a crew chief, whatever. So I'll ask you the same thing. Is there anything else that you'd like to accomplish in your racing career as a crew chief? Yeah, I obviously want to win more races and I want to win more championships. You know, getting that little bit of taste when we went to Nashville last year and getting that taste of being on stage and, and, and everybody celebrating for us. I, that meant a lot to me and meant a lot to my team. So I want to, I want to feel that again, anything, Less than that is going to be a disappointment. Ben has been very vocal and talking about how he is very comfortable and at home in the truck series. He's cool with essentially staying there for the rest of his career, right? You know, if cup team comes calling, sure, he'll entertain it. He ran a cup race last year, but he is very con comfortable right now where he is, and he doesn't feel like he needs to prove himself anywhere else. How do you feel about that? Do you feel the same way in terms of your professional development in your career? Are you happy with where you're at right now at Thor Sport? Yeah, it goes back to the loyalty that we talked about before. You know, these guys gave me the shot here. Duke and Rhonda had faith in me and gave me a shot here. So, I, you know, I'm I'm very comfortable here and very happy here, and they treat everybody well. And so if I stay here for the rest of my career, that's what happens. Well, it's very rare that I get to talk to a National Series crew chief for almost an hour during the season because I know you are one of the busiest men in motorsports, but I so appreciate your time, Rich. It was great to learn a little bit about you, your story, all that goes along with it. And I hope that we'll be seeing you doing another shoey in a few months here down in Phoenix. But we'll see you in the meantime. Good luck prepping everything for Darlington. It was awesome to get to know you a little bit better, man. Thank you so much for hopping on. 
I really appreciate you having me on and definitely hopefully we'll see you in Phoenix. And we're back. Whew, what a conversation. What a guy. What a guy. I tell you guys on this show all the time, everybody has a story and I want to bring those to you. And I think I did a good job of doing that with Rich today. So thank you to Rich for all the time. I mentioned it there at the end, but it's rare you get a crew chief for that long these days. Thank you to Len for helping coordinate the conversation. It was great to learn a little bit more about Rich, chat with him, and I mean it. I hope we see him having another shoey in Victory Lane at Phoenix later this year. But if not before that, maybe we'll do a shoey just to celebrate a, a random win in the summer stretch of the Drug Series. Of course, we got to chat briefly about the racing that we saw this past weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. How about Nikki Bobby? Happy Passover, my friend. Wins the ARCA race at Talladega, his second career ARCA Menard Series win. Over to the Xfinity Series, and A.J. Allmendinger wins the Dash for Cash again. Second $100,000 payday in a row, but he did not win the race. And neither did Jeffrey Earnhardt. Jeffrey Earnhardt came oh so close in that number three car crew chief by Larry Mack, by the way. But it was Noah Gregson who wins at Talladega. He did not have as much luck the following day with his number 62 Wendy's Beard Motorsports Chevrolet. But on Sunday, it was Ross the Boss, the Watermelon Man Chastain, who wins the race. His second career Cup Series win, both coming in the last five races. Insane the run that Trackhouse Racing and Ross Chastain specifically has been on. I don't think anybody saw this coming in the sense of him being tied for the most wins in the Cup Series this season right now with William Byron. That I did not see coming. I did see Trackhouse taking a step up. I did see Ross Chastain potentially winning a race, but I did not see this coming this soon. But, man, he was in the right place at the right time, and he said in victory lane or on the front stretch that everybody just kind of went away and the seas parted for him, but sometimes that's what it takes in big-time auto racing. Eric Jones had the lead coming to the white for most of the final lap, but he just got out too, too far, and he was swallowed up by the pack. Kyle Larson tried to make a move, sent Kurt Busch into the wall, which clipped Bubba Wallace. Denny Hamlin, not a good final few laps. Runs out of fuel, and then his two cars absolutely get destroyed coming to the checkered. So Eric Jones is kind of a sitting duck, and Ross Chastain just holds his line, got a big push from the three car of Austin Dillon, and wins at Talladega. What what a scene. What a watermelon smash. And I'm going to have to figure out if I'm actually going to smash my watermelon or not for my TikTok this week. I'll have to take that up with Robin. Talladega overall as a race, though. I mean, it was pretty good. I don't think that it was the stereotypical Talladega that we're used to and accustomed to seeing because there wasn't as many wrecks. There weren't as many three-wide runs that developed throughout the race. And that was a, a, a theme that we saw in the post-race comments from drivers, that there weren't a lot of runs that were being built throughout the race, even under green. Like, there were two wide racing for most of the time, but at the same time, there wasn't a lot of runs that you could get while you were in those different packs. I mean, you remember Talladega races just a few years ago. Say what you want about the Gen 6 car, but the Super Speedway package was elite. It was so, so fun to watch. You had three wide, four wide racing, uh, cars were able to generate runs like that with the snap of a finger. And it was really interesting to see the dichotomy of those races compared to these because you still could get runs in the outside lane and the inside lane. They were battling against each other. And, you know, if you had enough momentum and you had enough horsepower with the cars in your lane, 
you could come up and suck up to the driver in front of you, but you couldn't do it as well as you could have in the past. And I think that some of the drivers were a bit miffed by that. Ryan Blaney basically said point blank, you can't pass. You can't make runs with this package, with this car, the next-gen car on these super speedways. Saw it at Daytona, saw it a bit at Atlanta, albeit that's a bit of an anomaly. And you saw it again at Talladega. So I, I enjoyed it, though. I don't think it was your typical Talladega race in that respect because there wasn't as many runs. There wasn't as many passes for the lead and for the win coming down to the wire. But there still was good racing throughout the field. Strategy came into play in terms of manufacturers pitting together, as we've seen over the last couple years. And there wasn't as many wrecks, which I don't think is a bad thing. But I still think that the racing was solid. And I think that NASCAR will try to tweak on the package a little bit moving forward for the regular season finale at Daytona, the playoff race at Talladega, and if it's applicable for the second race at Atlanta in the summer as well. We're headed to Dover this weekend. Dover Motor Speedway, the first time that I will be attending my home track under new ownership and a new name. It is so weird to say Dover Motor Speedway out loud, but I'm going to have to get used to it. I haven't made the mistake yet, but I'm definitely going to at some point this weekend. Looking forward to getting out there for frontstretch.com. Be sure to keep up to speed with them on all the different social media platforms, including YouTube. And I just am happy to get back to the racetrack because I went back to Martinsville. That was fun, but I missed out on Richmond, which is one of my home tracks. I'm glad to get back out to Dover this year for their one and only date. Again, new ownership. So we'll see if anything changes with SMI in terms of the fan experience there, in terms of the branding and the recognition that goes along with everything that is the Monster Mile. And I'm also interested and intrigued to see how this package plays out at Dover Motor Speedway as well, because this was one of the tracks that was a bit of a casualty with the old package with the Gen 6 car. But upping the horsepower to 670, this track is going to be fast. It's going to be fast. The drivers are going to be physically worn out throughout the weekend. And I think that's going to make for some good racing. I hope it will anyway. So we'll see how it all plays out. Catch the action this weekend on the Fox Family Networks. And that'll wrap things up for episode 145 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you guys like what you heard today, please do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud. Wherever you get your podcast, we should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, just drop me a line at Davy Center on Twitter. You know where to find me. And I'll try to rectify that issue for you. Thank you again so, so much to Rich for coming on the show today, for Len for helping coordinate that conversation, and for you for tuning in to this show. We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR. I got a couple in the can. I can't wait for you guys to hear them. That'll have to wait for next week. Enjoy Dover, people. We'll talk after that next week.